Welcome to HelpCast, the heartbeat of health IT. I'm your host, Melissa Harris, and welcome to the sixth episode of our National Cancer Act 50th anniversary mini-series. Before we get started, remember to go back in our feed history to go through the other great episodes and speakers we've had. It'll be really great to understand some other areas of work that the National Cancer Institute has been working on before we jump into today's topic, which is on cancer technology and innovation. Throughout the miniseries, we've heard constantly about how innovation and collaboration have been two boons to the fight against cancer. We've learned about how different technologies are improving cancer screening and treatment options, how data is fueling better research, and more throughout the many conversations we've had in the past five episodes. But today, we're diving right into the history behind key technologies that NCI has leveraged and innovated to meet its goal of understanding and combating cancer. So with that being said, let's take a look at where technology was as a whole in the early 1970s when the Cancer Act was passed. Essentially, information exchange was just about all paper-based. Researchers were relatively isolated, and the data and information they produced were isolated as well. Data was sent around through the mail or by fax at best, and I'll let NCI's chief information officer, Jeff Schilling, explain what that meant for early cancer research. All the work was recorded in paper notebooks, and there was no computers really used in research. We, of course, had a grant portfolio, and those reviews all happened. Everything was sent out in via email or FedEx, and then the scientists would get together physically. They'd fly into a study section, and they they they'd go over all that material. And so the you know the pace of everything was very slow, and um, compared to today, it was very difficult for people to get together. It was difficult for them to talk about things. Um, the research was very local whether it was even at a cancer center, it would still be very local to that cancer center. It was hard to engage with other people from other parts of the country, certainly other parts of the world. And it required a lot of travel and a lot of expense compared to today where we can pick up the phone, we can send an email, we can have uh, several of, several platforms and, and have face-to-face communications that allow the the sharing of ideas and thoughts and the information at a much, much faster pace. As you might imagine, unleashing data, whether through the sharing of data or the data we can gather itself through different technologies, is a really critical piece to advancing work around cancer. Jeff pointed out that the internet was obviously a really big opportunity to expand data sharing and collaboration. But another important technological advent in the 1980s, for cancer research in particular, was the development of next-generation DNA sequencing. One of the biggest revolutions was next-generation DNA sequencing. That was Tony Kurlovich, the director of NCI's Center for Biomedical Informatics and IT, or CBIT. So that was developed in the 80s and, you know, and towards the end of the Human Genome Project. But what that did was... It led to a deeper understanding of genes, their function, control of gene expression, and protein pathways. And it changed the way that people did science from generally hypothesis-driven research to much more collaboration and community-driven resources. It spawned major programs like the Cancer Genome Atlas, which started generating petabytes of data 
And then it became impractical for researchers to to download those data to their own computers to analyze them. So there were a lot of stressors on the system in terms of research and data analysis. So in the late 20th century, as Tony mentioned, NIH was unlocking a lot more data through the efforts like the Human Genome Project and the Cancer Genome Atlas. But there was also the challenge of creating the architecture to unlock that data's potential. Fortunately, cloud services and infrastructure began to emerge as a new avenue for NCI to pursue in making data more readily available. The cloud service providers came along, cloud technology came along, and it gave us a new pathway, a new way to actually make data more broadly available and bring tools to the data rather than having to download data and bring them to your own tools. It's all run in the cloud. It all runs on the internet. It's 24-7. Everybody can get in whenever the patient comes in and they they can process that information. So it's something that maybe everybody is starting to take for granted that we just have this capability. This is, it's at our fingertips, but we still need to be able to um, utilize it in a very, um, you know, a very precise way. Right. So, um, so it's very exciting time to be able to do these kinds of things and utilize this information in a way that wasn't before. Even with the data accessibility that the cloud has introduced there are still challenges around improving data for research purposes, which Tony highlighted really well. We're in an era of data aggregation and harmonization, you know, enabling the sharing of data from many studies with the broadest research community possible. And doing this will start to spark new discoveries from the growing knowledge base. So we need more automated ways of doing that data harmonization so that we're not looking at individual experiments by individual investigators, but, but bringing together the collective knowledge from all of that research. Data harmonization and aggregation, as well as automated ways of doing it, isn't an easy task. For one, automation technologies like artificial intelligence and machine learning require data that's ready for their use. And that introduces all sorts of obstacles in data quality assurance, quality control, aspects of missing data, sampling biases, and more. And of course, there's also the issue around preserving patient privacy when you're also using and sharing data. Jeff added that the world of health data tends to live in systems and also have gaps and complicated policies, which all combined can make access difficult for both patients and researchers. The user can't just go and say, please show me all my healthcare data. There's just no way to do that. Everything is done from, well, I, I saw this doctor at this hospital or I went to uh, get this um, imaging scan at this center. And, and all that your data is very, it's collected and stored and thought of as, as, a, as, as more of a, a system thing and not your information. So sometimes we'll refer to this as, this data wrangling, basically, this how do we get this information? You know, in, in um, when the Cancer Act was passed, one of the things that that it really um, really authorized was that um, and mandated was that the all cancer um, diagnoses have to be reported. So the NCI and the CDC we collect that information, but once that's done, there's not much information there's not follow-up information. Like what was the, what was the actual treatment that was selected? What is the outcome of that patient? 
And so there's kind of a, a now we, we want to be able to track because we have the capability to do it now. We didn't have it in the 70s. We have it now. We can track a person through their whole life. So we can, what, one of the things we'd really like to be able to do was we'd like to be able to see when someone does get cancer, we'd like to be able to go back 20 years and say, was there something that happened or was there something they did? Was there an exposure or was there something that we could have predicted that they were going to be at higher risk of getting cancer? And um, that's the kind of information we could actually utilize today, that kind of analytics to try to do predictive predictions. But right now it's very, very difficult because we don't really have a, a a model to do that. Even if we did have a better model to improve the availability of data for research, there are also barriers in policies and regulations around data sharing and access in terms of privacy protections. Not only will overcoming this require some work on NCI's part, but the governments as a whole. The NCI has quickly come to the realization that we're going to need a complex model to manage all the different levels of privacy that people want. They want, diff- they want levels of privacy around what they buy and, and how they surf the web that are very different from how they want their healthcare private. And so there are times when it's, it's very, very difficult and, and it's not effective when someone is, in case of some kind of medical emergency, that you don't have access to any of their any of their background information, right? So that kind of, you know, I don't, I don't want to say too much privacy is bad, but, you know, privacy in the wrong place is, is, not, is not really the desire, right? I think we need to uh, start to have a much more larger national dialogue on what do people want to keep private and, and what do they, what are they okay sharing? And then um, that might change over time, right? We don't know how this information is going to be used. And if it gets, if it gets uh, used appropriately, that's one thing. If, if it gets used inappropriately or misused, or then can we create laws or create rules that limit the inappropriate use of data? Currently, we have a very uh, simple model that basically says, well, because it might be inappropriately used, you can't share it. Well, it's like, yeah, but what about all the appropriate uses? Now you told me I can't share it, maybe because it could be misused. So we, 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 we have so much more maturity in the space that, that needs to come from the policy side. I know that all of these obstacles might be really overwhelming to hear about, but they're important for understanding how policy change, technological change, and cancer research need to intersect. You can also recall, as we've talked about throughout this series, how resilient NCI has been in persisting to overcome what seems impossible. One of the ways that NCI has been trying to overcome the data aggregation and use piece is through the network of population-level data sources that its research community has leveraged. With these sources, NCI researchers can understand trends in various communities' healthcare and draw that data to understand cancer trends in underserved communities, across demographics, and more. We can actually use population-level data from sources like state health registries to look at health trends like cancer incidents, where their treatment is provided, treatment outcomes, and, and eventual cause of death. 
these data can help to us identify underserved populations. We can also identify places where there might be environmental factors that are underlying causes of cancer, and we can target those populations or regions with new outreach and care programs. It can also help us to improve our experimental design, and this is really key. It's not really technology per se, but it's the experimental design has to match the technology. For example, I talked about machine learning earlier. So ensuring that clinical trials, for example, include underserved populations, that we remove bias from studies, that it's that there's broad representation both on location, on access to medical care, on you know race and sex as being equally represented in these clinical trials. While NCI is making its own strides to find avenues to leverage data to push its mission forward, the Institute has also been embracing collaboration and partnerships as the path forward to overcome its challenges. These come in the form of cross-agency efforts and work with industry and academic partners. One of the things that we're doing is working a lot with industry to utilize their, their basic services like cloud service providers. Again, I mentioned internet service providers. It's also worth noting that these vendors are responding to the, to the needs that, that Tony mentioned. So for example, some of them have the ability to do de-identification of medical images, data sets. They can uh, process medical records in terms of machine learning and AI, and they make it a lot simpler and clearer and um, possible, actually, to really do a lot of the things that, that people are getting used to being done automatically. So we have a, a long way to go for sure, right? We're still somewhat behind in terms of the ability to process information the way users or, or patients or even just someone going to the doctor at all would expect. And so, so we're, we're really trying to work with um, many, many different groups. Sometimes it's Indian Health Service or anybody who can help us meet some of these overarching and address some of these problems that we have, like uh, this health disparities and uh, just, just getting some of this um, prevention information cancer detection, and also cancer treatment out to communities that are less served, like any rural communities, for example. NCI also works with other agencies like the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT to move fire standards forward to make data more available from electronic health records. And of course, NCI works with the other NIH institutes to overcome common challenges that they all have technologically. The other institutes and centers at the NIH are facing the same problems from a technology perspective. So we work very closely with them. We have collaborations around data management, data sharing, um, advanced analytics on a very massive scale. We also partner with academia along with the other ICs and uh, on our shared goals, things like cloud-based data commons or secure authentication and authorization to use data privacy-preserving methods, as I was mentioning earlier, and machine learning applications. Each of these in their own um, area of research are tackling these problems. And it makes sense for us to be working collaboratively so that each of us doesn't have to reinvent the wheel, but we can work together towards a common solution. Jeff also added that the National Cancer Centers are another important network 
for enabling information sharing across the cancer research space. What really struck me about what he said is that the cancer centers are a construct that can set the stage for a similar setup in a digital space. When the cancer centers were created, it, it's it's basically a hospital and a research organization that you know has a certain level of commitment to cancer research, and they get funded to maintain that commitment. And so, um, I, you know, it it might be the same thing that that gets created on the digital side. That there are digital repositories or some organizations that that broker and manage this data. Uh, we don't really know what that future is going to bring, but those needs are there. And so I think the there are some contract constructs again that 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 are out there that are very useful. And in some ways, they've been around for so long we kind of take them take them for granted. But they are a huge part of the success of the National Cancer Institute. Clearly, there's a lot of opportunity here with all of the underlying work NCI is pushing for. And as it improves, we've been seeing how the technological progress that the biomedical field and NCI have seen are making a difference. For one, you might remember how we've talked about precision medicine throughout the miniseries. Precision medicine looks at the genetic and environmental conditions of each individual to tailor a treatment for them. Between the Human Genome Project and technologies we have to review patient information from across their life cycle, precision medicine has become better and better. Precision medicine has grown right out of the Human Genome Project and our, our, our understanding of the, of the complete genome and, and the technologies that allow us to examine the genetic makeup of not only an, an, an individual's own genetic makeup, but the genetic makeup of their tumors. These technologies require not only a complete history for every patient, but also very accurate tracking of the patients, of the biospecimens, and data management, as well as a knowledge base of all known gene alterations and other biomarkers. So having that as a, as a background resource to compare an individual patient to everything that's already known about certain gene alterations. We also employ artificial intelligence pipelines in our precision medicine trials that can take in certain genetic panel data, histology data, and, and other information and can recommend the best treatment option for each patient based upon all of that information. We've had to build software systems to manage every step in that process from that, the, the data management through the AI pipelines and the treatment assignment uh, to certain arms of a clinical trial. Uh, as we go forward, additional information is going to become more prominent in measuring treatment outcomes, including, as I mentioned before, patients reporting on their own health status, patient-reported outcomes. And this will include through wearing wearable devices and vitals being measured, movement, you know, things like uh, blood pressure or heart rate, blood oxygen levels, all of those sorts of things I think are going to contribute in, in the overall health of an individual, but also how well they're responding to treatment. I wanted to add that we, we really want to make sure that we always include prevention and diagnosis in that. It's not just the treatment. Ideally, you know, we, we would prevent cancer. That would be the ideal state. And so information about you know, your likelihood to get it, your exposures, like I mentioned earlier, your screening times, when should you be going in for screening? Your, are you getting, you know, an email every month saying you still have not signed up for this screening you should be taking based upon your age or risk factors. So 
there is a lot to do with technology that could really, really help a lot of people. I don't think we we have data on that. So nothing Tony and I have ever seen that I'm aware of that would say state by state, what what's the screening status of everyone? Right. I mean, you, you, that's valuable, valuable information because are people getting screened on time? And um, so, so there's so much that technology could provide into a lot of these spaces. We just really need to um, continue to have dialogues and kind of, you know, work with some of these groups who have these great ideas and, and get them off the ground. Speaking of getting ideas off the ground, there's another group within NCI that we haven't talked about yet, but is really important to NCI's innovation efforts. And that's NCI's Small Business Innovation Research Program, or SBIR for short. Congress started the SBIR programs across a variety of government agencies in the early 1980s. In short, the offices enable federal agencies to fund small businesses, especially startup companies, as a pathway to support technological development that meet mission needs across the government. As you can imagine, SBIR at NCI can be a really key way to get new innovation anywhere from drug development to diagnostics, research tools, and more. NCI SBIR Development Center Director Michael Weingarten also highlighted that at NCI, SBIR also looks to help uplift next-generation technologies that will help cancer patients and researchers alike. When we fund a technology, usually we come in very early stage, and and in the biotech space, it can it can take you know for a new drug, for example, to be developed all the way from the lab out to patients, it can take ten years. So we're usually very early in terms of when we invest in these technologies, and then. Our goal is to push them to a key inflection point where then private investors will step in and fund the continued development of that technology and commercialize it. What's also cool about SBIR is that the small businesses they support often sprout into game-changing tools for biomedicine, and in some cases can create a whole new industry. And before I let Michael go into it, I just need to note that none of the particular examples he shares today show preferential endorsements for particular companies that SBIR supports. Just a disclaimer. One great example of that is, is a company, a uh, well-known company in, in the field called Illumina. We actually funded this company back in the early 2000s to develop a technology. It's called an infinium assay. And an infinium assay is actually a genotyping assay which enables you to scale the entire genome. And that had never really been done before. And why that's so important was that that enabled Illumina really to get into the whole next generation sequencing field. And that's that's really the base technology for for companies like 23andMe, Ancestry.com, and also the NIH All of Us program. And you're probably familiar with the with a company like Ancestry.com, because you can use that to learn about your, your family tree and your family history. And uh, the Illumina technology that we funded is actually the, the base technology that enabled that, that whole industry to, to help develop. Uh, that's actually an over $3 billion market now for, for Illumina. And it just started off as a, you know, an idea on paper initially and SBIR came in, we, we, we funded kind of the higher risk type research on that technology. 
and and because of that, the positive results that came out of out of the research that we funded, that that enabled Illumina to gain confidence in the technology and really to move that technology forward and and really to help create that new, whole new industry. And that was just one example, but across all of the companies that SBIR has supported, there has been tangible return on investment, both economically and improving healthcare. Just to give you an idea, SBIR issued 690 different Phase II awards between 1998 and 2010, and overall generated an estimated $26.1 billion in total economic output nationwide. You know, that shows the, the return. And we, we also worked with an economist because we didn't want to just look at what kind of revenues these, these technologies generated. We wanted to look at the total impact on the economy as a whole. So working, on, working with the economist, doing some economic modeling, the economist was actually able to determine that the total impact on the economy as a whole was over $26 billion over that time frame between 1998 in 2018. And that was from an initial investment by the NCI of only $800 million. So we're actually getting a, a 33 to 1 return on investment from the initial dollars that the NCI put in to the $26 billion overall economic impact on the economy as a whole. And the other additional benefit is there, there were an estimated 100,000 jobs that were created by NCI's investment in all these small businesses working on cancer technologies. Michael had one really great example on how SBIR has helped one group innovate a new drug that has made overcoming an aggressive form of breast cancer much more possible. One of the best examples of that is a drug that, that we funded um, with a company called Immunomedics. And we did the very early stage funding of a drug that is now on the market uh, that's called Tridelvi. And Tridelvi is a treatment for triple negative breast cancer, which accounts for 10 to 15% of all breast cancers. It's also approved for metastatic triple negative breast cancer, which is an aggressive cancer and has very limited treatment options. And what's important about Tridelvi is that it's a targeted therapy that has been shown to cut the risk of death by 49% when you compare that to traditional chemotherapy. So, and, and just this year, in addition to the triple negative breast cancer used for that drug, they also received FDA accelerated approval for locally advanced or metastatic urothelial cancer. So we, we funded actually the first inhuman clinical studies on that drug. That was the NCI's contribution. And the impact of this drug was so, so great that Immunomedics was actually acquired by another company called Gilead uh, for $21 billion uh, just two years ago. So SBR can really serve as the catalyst, you know, where we can take this early stage risk in these companies that maybe investors would not take and then uh, prove that the technology can have an impact, and then uh, the private sector steps in to continue to develop that technology and ultimately get it out to patients. The fact that SBIR has been funding, in many cases, moonshot initiatives, the program has a really great view of the types of technologies on the horizon 
as promising future solutions to pushing the fight against cancer forward. Just a couple of the areas that we're really excited about it at the NCI with our SBR program are areas like artificial intelligence and also in liquid biopsies. And what the NCI tries to do is once a year, we kind of look across the entire field and we look at emerging technology areas where if the NCI were to invest some funding in those areas, we could really help catalyze uh, the development of that given field. And artificial intelligence and liquid biopsies are certainly two of those areas that we're focused on. Another area that we're really excited about is, is another field that is called synthetic biology. And we're, we're actually looking to fund the development of technologies in synthetic biology gene circuits that can actually be used for cancer therapy. So that's a brand new field, uh, very cutting edge. And we're, we're really excited about getting proposals from the small business community in that area. SBIR funds projects in 15 different areas. And for the groups that SBIR funds, it also provides other resources beyond funding, such as entrepreneurship training, connections with private investors, and work with the Food and Drug Administration to get feedback on the regulatory strategies. So I know we talk a lot about the arc of history at NCI in this miniseries, but we rarely get to talk about how you can be a part of it. Michael mentioned that if you have a great idea in the cancer space that you want to get off the ground, He has 12 different program directors that specialize in different technology areas across the cancer spectrum. They're all there to give you advice about how to get involved with SBIR. And now that you know that you can be a part of the future of NCI's work, I just wanted to emphasize how Jeff, Tony, and Michael have all highlighted how collaboration and passion to understand and fight cancer drive the technology and innovation NCI has seen. Although the evolution of technology has helped NCI, it's the people behind it that make the difference. Part of what makes the National Cancer Institute a great place to work is all the hardworking, dedicated people that work here. So uh, it, it, it's, um, it's not just an exciting time technologically, but socially and, and uh, our culture is um, a one where everybody is excited and, and really happy to be moving these things forward as best as possible. All of the folks at NCI give us a lot of hope for finding progress, and it's great to see them pushing the ball forward with technological innovation and passion for their work. That passion is something we've seen throughout this whole miniseries, and you'll see it in our next episode too, which will center around cancer centers. I know Jeff mentioned the cancer centers briefly before, but they're a really important component to the country's ability to treat and research cancer. It'll be a great conversation. So stay tuned next month to hear more. Until then, thank you for following the National Cancer Act 50th Anniversary Commemoration miniseries. Look back in our feed to listen to the other episodes we've done for this miniseries throughout the year. We look forward to having you join us next time. HealthCast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, head to governmentciomedia.com slash podcasts. HealthCast is produced by Amy Kluber, hosted by Melissa Harris and Adam Patterson. If you liked what you heard, let us know by leaving a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.